Hi, and welcome to the Miseducation of BSLP. My name is Ingrid. I'm one of your hosts. And my name is Ayelet. I'm your other host. And we're here today to have our second episode discussing the trials and tribulations of the speech-language pathology world. Essentially, we're here just to talk with each other, kind of shoot some stories, let you guys know some experiences of some of your fellow professionals, and basically find um, a little bit of relief in a little bit of release. (laughs) A little bit of common ground and a little bit of knowledge that, you know, we are not alone in our uh, suffering. (laughs) How would you put it? Pretty much. So we spend some time every week or so with some of our friends and some of our internet uh, reach outs and we interview SLPs and have them talk to us about their career and offer maybe nuggets of wisdom so that the next generation or even others that are in the field and uh, are the current generation struggling with what to do with some of these ridiculous instances. <laughs> I think the nuggets of wisdom come more from your end. My uh, my end is more the ranting and raving um, part. We all have our place in the world. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> So we're here to, uh, yeah, just offer a little bit of what we can to help re-educate our peers and get them going in something that may be helpful in, you know, this rocky, rocky road that is uh, speech-language pathology. So um, Ayala, take it away. All right. So last week, Ingrid um, interviewed one of our colleagues, and uh, she led the uh, episode and I kind of was just there for the for the takes. Uh, so this week I'm going to be uh, reading my interview out to Ingrid and reading some experiences of another colleague. And uh, Ingrid has not heard this stuff before, so all of her uh, reactions are going to be real and off the cuff. Uh, so we will start talking about our friend Cassie. We'll call her Cassie. And uh, I started off asking her to tell me about her career. So Cassie started right after undergrad at a school in the school system and worked her way through grad school while still working in the schools. Um, After almost eight years with that same district, she decided to go into pediatric home health. Uh, And then less than a year later, (laughs) she left that job and went back to the schools, but switched districts. So she started at a new district. Um, So she's, she's, Still pretty new out of her CFY in that first like three year period, um, but has a lot of experience under her belt because she worked uh, all that time as, you know, as she was getting her master's. What did she do for work? She worked in the school system. As a teacher did you know, or SLPA? No, no, no. You know, here in Florida, you don't have to have your master's degree in order to start working as an SLPA oh, yeah, in school. That's right. That's right. That's right. I And and it's a good question that you ask because some people out there don't realize that. I completely forgot. So that. some states do uh, provide like a waiver because of the critical shortage of SLPs and uh, will allow you to work with just your bachelor's. Um, here in Florida, you have... Uh, I believe it is two years after you get your bachelor's degree to get accepted into a master's program that you're allowed to work those two years. And then you have five years to complete the program. So you can actually work for seven years as a speech therapist in the Florida public school system before you get your master's degree. Outstanding standards. Really. Uh, (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, not to say anything bad about those undergrad there or those uh, bachelor level therapists, because I have met some fantastic and dedicated and wonderful bachelor level therapists. But as a profession, it does kind of give people the feeling that, you know, we can just hire anybody off the street a little bit. A little bit or a lot of bit? Let's. <laughs> and I, I really do think that that is something that contributes to the lack of respect and getting treated like a professional um, that some of us encounter. And again, also- for any undergrad SL or any undergrad. I'm sorry, not master's level speech therapists that are out there. This is not a knock against you guys because you guys bust your asses out there. And I see you working hard, coming up with great ideas and doing great therapy. But to just kind of say like, oh, well, the master's degree doesn't matter for seven years is kind of a slap in the face. Well, I'm, I'm more the person that's inclined to, even when you get your master's degree, you kind of go out feeling a little bit like, oh, I don't have enough information. So I feel actually pretty heartbroken for those SLPAs that definitely don't have the you know education and they're just doing the best they can to help make some type of dent in a very messed up system that isn't set up properly for them. So I mean to have the resources they need and the support they need as SLPAs, which, you know, is with a close relationship with an SLP to help guide them. It's not really something that's offered. And it, that's part of what hurts me for Cassie's story, because I feel, you know, she's doing what she can. She's go, definitely going through the program, but I wonder how many times she was going through her master's program going, oh my gosh, I totally can use this in my career. Like, <laughs> And it's just so disappointing that she didn't have it or have access to it uh, from what I'm kind of getting the understanding of on, on her story. Yes, absolutely. And it, it, it really is. And some districts will literally just throw you in. And I mean, you can do evaluations. You get treated the same as a master's level therapist. Um, and some, some districts don't even have like a difference. So it's not even like when you're an SLPA and you're working under an SLP, you're in a lot of places on your own as a bachelor level clinician. Well, I definitely don't think it's something that we, we can ignore. So what are some things that we think can be a solution for these circumstances? I I mean, ideally you would treat a bachelor level clinician as an SLPA and not as an SLP. I understand that there's a need. I understand that, you know, that the reason that they opened this up is because there was a shortage of professionals who were available and they needed to fill those spots, but we should still be following the same guidelines. Well, that's not what an SLP can do. An SLP, uh, you know, the bachelor level SLP, they can't do anything to change the system. Oh, no, they can't. And the solution we would have to do is how can we as clinicians offer them support? Are there avenues we can direct them to to get them the education that might help them so that they have more um, more available to them to feel more secure in this role? Because unfortunately, we're not going to change the environment we're in. 
until we really push and educate and open up the understanding of our profession in a very diplomatic way because we live in a corporate environment. But for the SLPs that are out there at bachelor's level doing this, what are some, you know, the idea is what can, where can we direct them to get them resources or support or education, whatever they might need, because they really will need it and they do need it. You know, we all need it as professionals. So do you know of anything where we could direct them to help them? Well, I mean, you know, in districts that I've worked in that have had, um, bachelor level clinicians, we all had our, you know, our PLC groups, our professional learning communities that we could meet with. And, you know, sometimes, uh, well, anyone who was assigned would get a mentor and have some kind of support. That was in the district that I worked for, but I know that that doesn't apply in every district. Um, because I know when I started at another district, um, than the one that I most recently worked for when I was in my CFY. Uh, I was the part-time person at a school in my CFY with my master's and the full-time person at my school had her bachelor's. It was her first year working in the schools and she had not even been accepted to a grad program before. And so the two of us kind of were just thrown into a room, like this is your room, figure everything out. We didn't know how to find the kids on our caseload. We didn't have access to their records in the computer. We had no idea like where to do anything. Outstanding. Got to love how dope it is to be in this profession. This is how we are at work. We just go to work and they're just like, oh, let's just give you whatever. And you're like, oh, cool. Here's your room. Bye. I think think at day three of us kind of looking at each other, trying to like organize the – uh, hurricane disaster area that was that classroom. Uh, one of the bilingual clinicians who did evaluations for the district came into the room, um, introduced herself to us and was like, I'm here to help you guys get set up. And we were like, Oh, wonderful. Cause school starts in three days and we don't know what to do. Um, well, at least but we literally, that. Um, yeah. at least it was, I will say for the SLPAs or, and the SLPs that are bachelor level, um, either one, you know, the SLPAs, hopefully they do have some supervision that they get the support they need. Um, but in general, there's a lot of resources on, on Facebook, um, that I've come across. There's lots of SLP pages. There's always, always, always going to ASHA, which I know a lot of people don't appreciate that resource, but. And some people can't afford that resource. Absolutely. But I would still <laughs> call in and see what you could do to see if there's anything they can toss your way with education of access to things that you need. Um, I, I know of, of the MetaSLP Collective. They're, they're really big on resources and things like that. I don't know what level you need to be in to participate, but these are just different things that we're saying, okay, well, if you really need resources or you really need support or education on what you're doing, um, there might be some avenues to go down. Now, med SLPs, I think, is more for medical level, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. But there's definitely pediatric stuff um, available oh. on Facebook, for sure. I mean, Facebook Facebook crowdsourcing is a great way to find you know, some advice. Not all of it is great all of the time, but... Uh, but you can find some really great resources there and some great advice from um, from your colleagues. 
Um, so there are a lot of SLP pages out there. Um, so what's the next thing that you were, you were talking to Cassie about? So I asked her if, um, she feels like she was well-educated for the profession. And she said after grad schools, in a lot of ways, she feels very, she felt, she feels very well-educated. She feels like she truly, I'm going to switch to, uh, speaking in her voice, because this is a little difficult to keep switching it. So she says, I feel like I truly understand my role and what I need to do to be effective. It's just very hard and annoying working in a field that's constantly innovating and moving forward to be stuck in a profit-driven, eligibility requirement-obsessed, cookie-cutter, quote, this is how we've always done this world. Because we're always moving and changing and learning and growing. And a lot of times people want to keep us in that stamp. That's me paraphrasing her. She didn't say, she didn't say it, just all that. Um, she said, as a bachelor level clinician, I was always second guessing myself and feeling so uncomfortable with my decisions. Looking back, I was very vulnerable to miseducation and mistreatment. It's been a huge learning curve to stand up for myself, project confidence and competence and find ways to not get so bothered by what others think. And she means others that don't have our expertise. She said, you realize when you start working, this is actually something that she came back to a little bit later. She said, you realize as you start working that your professors are just as susceptible to biases and wrong opinions as anyone else. We're in a field that covers so many areas, literally from birth to death. And we leave a jack of all trades and a master of none. I felt this so many times. She has so many insightful comments in here. She said, in the real world, you will work with clients who have comorbidities and needs out the wazoo. And you won't find any RCTs to help you treat this human being sitting before you. Uh, Random RCTs, randomized control trials. So, which is to say that usually professors professors have been specializing in a specific area for so very long time that they have the luxury of saying, you know, this is Dr. So-and-so's area of expertise, but you probably will not have that luxury. Yeah, definitely not. And that's a beautiful and well-put expression of how she felt miseducated. I definitely feel like I'm in line with, with what she has to say. I think... It's a constant and really, really, really problematic situation of the structure we're fit to grow in. Um, We don't fit here. You know, our science doesn't fit here. Our expertise and drive as women to nurture and heal and push and grow, as well as, you know, even even educated men in our profession that want to advance the science and push it forward. I think ultimately, you know, we're motivated in that as healers and people evolve. So science has to evolve with it. And unfortunately the system is not allowing that. Um, And she's feeling it like every person would. Uh, That's why I feel it. That's why the show is here. That's why I have to talk about it. That's not an option anymore because it's uncomfortable. Yeah. Absolutely. It drives women to drink. I mean, how much, how much wine have I consumed? Because of- I was going to say, what are you drinking right now? Because I've got my truly. Oh my gosh, the girl is on the five percenter at this moment. Like, 
let's elevate. At least get a 12 percenter in you. Let's get some wine in your mouth. Okay. This, this is ridiculous. But I mean, I just I, I just don't understand where there's a breakdown between the academic environment and the clinical practitioner to such a vast degree, because it's not only the science that's advancing, it's the gap between the clinician and the, and the Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I mean, we all remember sitting in, uh, you know, in grad school and having three hours to write our notes and having to do like seven revisions on our soap notes after a therapy session. And like, now you're just like, you know, three seconds, let me drop this down real quick before I run off to see the next kid, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. I get lucky if I write a percentage in with a full sentence, like what? That's a beautiful day because you you have to meet this type of experience of just modifying yourself to fit while your schooling just doesn't want to take that into consideration. Like when did universities stop understanding this? When did accreditation stop caring about this? And watching the profession get smaller and smaller and smaller in society because it is, it's holding less and less value except for if it, it's like, you've helped my kid or you've helped my mom or, you know, that's when it becomes something of relevance, but can it be something of relevance because it's a really necessary science? Yeah. <laughs> you always get so heavy on me and then I don't know what to say. I mean, it's how I roll, sister. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you, just, you just like to leave me speechless. <laughs> well, it's how I move through the world. It's just full of all this stuff that I say. And then next thing I know, people around me are just quiet. I'm like, what? What happened? <laughs> what did I do? <laughs> you just dropped a bomb on us and we are just trying to figure out how to sift through the rubble and get to the top of it. Oh, goodness. So, I, mean, I think there's a lot of joy um, when we can get creative in the environments that are really fulfilling. Like university environments are probably one of the most thrilling spaces to be a speech language pathologist or research places. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that's where we really get to flex those muscles as creatives or, you know, pathologists that want to push it and change it and, and help people individually with good things yeah. in our backdrop. That's the combination of the academics in the university level and the practicing clinician. That's the sweet spot. And we need to make that universal across the, across the plains. And, you know, yeah, I think, I think we all know, like, I, I know, like when, for me, like when I, when I get into a session, like whether it's with an adult or with a kid, but like, we're really like moving, like we're really accomplishing something that kid is getting it or, you know, like that, you know, adult is, you know, finally like broke through that apraxia post-stroke and said that word. And like, you're really, really in it. You forget to take your little check marks and you forget to about your percentage points and you forget what time it is. And you're just, you know, having fun or you're working hard, but you're in it and you're in the zone and not thinking about all the outside stuff. If only it was like that more often. Truly something that I'm hoping is the directional shift of our profession. You know, I think the more we speak on the things we don't appreciate and don't like, the more we connect with each other, the more, the more we try to push for a, a space of resistance against it. I'm hoping, I'm really hoping uh, we can push a shift in what we're experiencing. I, I think ASHA needs to understand what we're really looking for when it comes to advocacy and, and change and 
real world discussions that impact our opportunities to be able to do this the, this job the right way, this profession the right way, and not go broke doing it. <laughs> oh God. Um, yeah, I don't. You know, I don't think it's necessary for anything that is about health and progress and improvement of the quality of life. I think money should go into that just because it's really great and not because of anything other than the fact that it's really great. Um, it should be performance driven. It should be outcome driven, but it shouldn't be a space where we're unwilling to be flexible with how that's accomplished. Sometimes those things take more time, but the time is shorter you know, let us get yeah. creative here. Let us do something that might look a little unorthodox because clearly 90% productive, although it looks great in the financial realm of things, what does that look like for the outcomes of the patient? And shouldn't that be the reinforcing factor for money? Yeah. And since we're talking about money, um, Cassie actually uh, wrote a couple of stories here that we could call her miseducation moments or some of her, you know, work horror stories or the things that really got under her skin. And the first one that I was going to share with you is actually pertains to money because uh, you don't work in the schools here in Florida, but uh, teachers and uh, by extension, us SLPs, we work um, on merit pay. So our pay is um, ref our, our performance. And I use that in quotes um, is reflected in our pay and how we get our raises. So Cassie says, uh, some SLPs get really mad when people call them speech teachers. I'm not one of those people, but it did really bother me to be evaluated on a rating scale for classroom teachers. It's hard to be expected to do your job and then the job of a teacher too. It always felt like I was mentally pulled in so many different directions as a learning clinician and judged super harshly on, on the least important shit. Makes me mad to think about all the hours I wasted thinking about and making learning scales, having students rate themselves, focusing specifically on compare contrast or asking hard questions to low performing kids to get a good rating on my eval. Getting rated on professionalism by someone I saw three times a year was also stressful as hell. Being observed during sessions by someone who didn't know my students or their goals was also irritating. There are so many factors out of your control in a brief snapshot moment. Even though my observations were usually good, I still have PTSD about observations and evaluations because of all the stress of trying to manufacture a perfect snapshot. And this is what they do, Ingrid, is that, you know, three times a year, or depending on how long you've been with the district, two times a year, your, you know, supervisor, your program specialist, whatever you call it in your area, will schedule a time and a group to come in and observe you and will make little marks on the Marzano scale, which is for teachers, not really related to our field. And based on how we score on that, that's how they decide how much of a raise we get if we get one for the following year. That's, that's how I feel about that. That's how I feel about that. <laughs> I left you speechless this time. That was my whole, like, what am I, what am I supposed to say to that? Like the, the, 
Mm, but at, like, what can I really say to something so asinine? And we, yeah. we accept it. We accept it. We don't, we, there's nothing we do to address it. We just, we're like, okay, this is what we're doing. What else are we going to do? I mean, sit down and strike. I don't know. I have no idea. I, that's, it's just become so laughable to me. How ridiculous um, evaluating and providing raises are, you know, I mean, the fact that we strive for a 1% raise or that we strive to participate in things like, I, it just, there are no words for this because I know of wonderful, fantastic influencers on social media that make more money than I will see in a year. Yeah. So I just, I can't have words for it other than, yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You're not surprised. Not surprised at all. Mm -hmm. This is where we're at. But this is what we need people to understand when they get into this profession. Because it's not just about you're not making any money. It's, It's about how they go about making you feel really bad about something that you really love. You love being a speech pathologist. You actually go to work, not for the money, and then they have the audacity to rate you on something that has nothing to do with your profession. Absolutely. And and know anything about your profession. They're evaluating you not knowing what you do. Well, I will say that in the district that I worked in, we were actually evaluated by people in our department, but I did work in another district where we were school-based and not district-based, and uh, we were evaluated by the principal and the vice principal. And let me tell you that at one of the schools I was at at this district, if I would have been rated by that principal, uh, there would have been a me-shaped hole in the door because, first of all, anything more than five minutes spent with that woman uh, was too much and too long. And I would not, my evaluations would not have gone well with her. Uh, but yeah, it, you know, you you really depending on, you know, how your district works, you could be getting evaluated by the principal who doesn't know anything about special education, who doesn't know anything about speech therapy, um, doesn't know anything about anything really. And, and that's how you're, and you're stuck with that. It's an unfortunate situation that, that is part of our role as clinicians. You know, there's in, in other environments, you get evaluated by a physical therapist. No offense to my brothers and sisters in therapy. Hello, physical, (laughs) occupational, you on my team, you know, I love you. But um, sometimes when your CODAs decide to evaluate us, it just, it's like, um, hmm. Okay. So um, how does that work? You just like I wouldn't dream of thinking that I could evaluate a physical therapist on their job or an occupational therapist on their job. Hmm. <laughs> so um, I have another story from her. Okay. And this is about um, kind of talk a little bit more talking about uh having the time to be prepared or being unprepared when you start. So here we go. In Cassie's first year as a bachelor's level therapist working in the schools, it was mid-December and the SLP before me had up and quit about a month or two before I started. It was my fourth day, brand new to the school and the field. Mind you, first year bachelor level therapist. That's where we're at here. 
I literally did not know my ass from a hole in the ground. My mentor came in to see me and she wasn't happy that I hadn't started therapy yet. I was fucking floored. I was still reading and writing IEPs. The schedule I was left was a fucking mess. I barely knew the names of the students on my caseload, not to mention my office was a damn mess. This mentor made me feel like it was my fault these students had gone one to two months without therapy. The fuck? The worst part was I did feel guilty. I felt guilty for not having my master's degree and not being a pro SLP. We already talked about this. And not hitting the ground running, aka doing therapy like a chicken with my head cut off. It's really hard starting a relationship with a superior who comes at you like that on their first day meeting you. Having expectations that feel impossible. It honestly set the tone for most of my time spent with that district. I'm going to say this very, 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 very clearly. We have wonderful, fantastic, outstanding supervisors in our profession. We do. And then we have terrible, terrible, terrible mentors, terrible CF supervisors. They're awful because they don't care about this profession. What One iota. Even with, even with a master's degree, somebody walking into that situation is not going to hit the ground running. Nothing about that environment is conducive with hitting the ground running. It is conducive with failure because no one took pride in the role before you arrived. And it's in that moment that I've taken a nice deep breath. I puff my chest out and I go, who exactly do you think you just hired? (laughs) because I'm willing to get fired. I'm comfortable with the idea now, especially, but in general, it becomes a situation where I'm like, I am not a super person. I'm a person, just a normal one, not a super one. So I'm not capable of what you're saying. And I'm comfortable in being incapable. I think the idea of feeling guilt or whatever is this overachieving expectation of what we should be, how we should operate, what we should be doing, instead of just existing exactly where we are and saying, I'm not able, it's not in me. That's not exactly where I'm at in my life. And that's the piece that I'm applying to every single speech language pathologist out there. Just live in the reality of where you are instead of moving in this concept that you should be someplace else. You can only be where you are in your career. You can only be where you are as a speech-language pathologist with your education, with your expertise. You can only be where you are. There is no need to be anywhere else in your mind. But I, this, is, this is the piece. This is why we're here, and this is why we're doing this, is that in that situation, when your supervisor is coming at you like that, the imposter syndrome kicks in. And don't you just think, oh man, any other SLP would be able to do this. They would have already started. They would have handled this. They would be doing this, 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 and this. And this is why it's so important for us to talk about that because no, we wouldn't. We are not all capable of that. We would not all be jumping in day one and starting to pull kids without having even looked at their IEPs. And we shouldn't be expected to do that. And that's the beauty of like having these candid open conversations right now to show that you're not alone and you're not the only one going through this and we're not all this you know 
what was it they called it? Our, the lipstick and pumps speech pathologist who walks around with her hair perfectly done and her nails perfectly done in high heels while the rest of the school or the rest of the uh, hospital is in scrubs or jeans. We are not perfect. And I mean, we're human and we need some time to prepare. I think it, it's partially shaped through the graduate programs and the way that the, the you know, the way that they present the speech pathology profession, but she didn't have the advantage of even having a master's program to help her through. She came in with just bachelor's degree. And I knew, I knew what I got educated on my, my last two years in my undergrad. And I'm like, that's not it. <laughs> that's not, that's not adequate. But I, I mean, the, the picture of what we consider in our minds, I don't know who that archetype is from. I don't know where that belongs. It could be, um, you know, the, the speech pathology world is predominantly shaped by 94% white people or 92, I believe it was 92. And there's like 8% of the others, you know, and, and so white women have a tendency to want to carry themselves in a certain way, but I don't know anyone part of the 8% in this profession that walks around the speech language pathology world as I know it all. In fact, we are very comfortable in saying we do not. <laughs> We do that very, 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 very well because we understand where we're limited. Now, there's a portion of our our experience as speech pathologists where we encounter other therapists that think they know a lot. That's a very special pool. That's a that's a very special pool, and we can address that on another day, on another show. Oh, that is not this yeah. one. However, I've come across those uh, in person. Ooh, in SIGs, hello. In on Facebook groups, I'm gonna, need, I'm gonna need some of them to pull all the way back because when you are talking to me about what you know in this profession and you don't, ooh, but ooh, I'm going down that road. Let me not. Let me let me pull it back to the point. The point is, um, the people I've encountered on the on the other side, on the on the side that's more like, okay, we fought to get here. We're struggling. And any speech pathologist that struggled or fought or got to the point where they're just like, I'm gripping onto this career tooth and nail, you know, we're comfortable with the areas that we don't know and, and the things that we're not willing to do. I cannot meet this expectation. I cannot do it. It's not something that's feasible for me. This is not going to occur. And ultimately, we disappoint people all the time by getting in trouble and not meeting standards <laughs> and accepting the consequences of that because we are part of um, you know, that secret group of individuals that are willing to say, this is not what we can do. And we hope all speech pathologists feel comfortable saying that. Yeah. Ingrid, I swear we are on the same wavelength today. You are like segueing into all my stories without even know what, <laughs> what I'm going to talk about. So on the topic of people who think they know everything, let's go into our next story. So Cassie says... I worked with an ESC teacher who used to work in law enforcement. She definitely had a punitive approach with the students and her para was an older woman, super set in her ways. I will admit I didn't like them and our approaches definitely didn't align. Any ideas or attempts to collaborate were ignored. We shared a student who had severe apraxia and used a communication device to talk. He had intense behaviors and he was often agitated when he wasn't understood. 
It was a major battle to make sure his device was accessible to him all the time. One day I came in and his device was on the para's desk. I asked for the device and the teacher literally told me that he can't have it because he got it taken away. I wasn't having it. She's like you, Ingrid. And as nicely as I could, I said, it's time for speech. And that's how he communicates. She told me he can talk and that she was sick of me babying him. I was livid. I have no patience for people who have that crusty attitude. And I basically nodded and took the device and started working with him. Five minutes later, an administrator came to escort me out of the classroom. It was insane. I didn't quite know what the fuck was going on, but it was pretty clear that we had a difference of expertise and opinion that was irreconcilable. It still makes me mad to think about that day and even sadder to think about that poor student. My thinking as I listen to this is why is it the SLP always loses? Mm-hmm. Why? why is the administrator coming in and telling you that you're wrong? Why? It's your time with him. I don't recognize this at all. This aspect of in every single space, we lose. Like we are the people that are the, the, we can't convince anybody of anything. Like we are the like the young what how did we lose? We're actually really good. We know what we're doing. So how is it that Cassie, the expert in the room for all intents and purposes, is losing in the area that she was hired to be the expert in the room in? Like, how does that work? Because she is explaining this is the communication that you're trying to get at this student. And ultimately, the person who doesn't understand communication is trying to tell you that talking is the only way that we talk, that we communicate when 70% of it is nonverbal. And uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've been there. Oh my gosh, the battle over AAC devices in the school system is just enough to make you want to quit. Honestly, it is so difficult to be working with a student and knowing that you're the only person who uses his device that he doesn't use, that he or she doesn't use the device in the classroom, that they don't use it at home. And, you know, the parents and the teachers will fight you tooth and nail about getting a device. And then the minute that the kid has it, they think that they're just going to know how to use it without any training, mm -hmm. without any learning. And then when they don't, they're like, oh, well, he doesn't need it. And that's it. And then everybody just gives up. Mm -hmm. And it is so frustrating. Oh, I and it happens. Almost every time. I can imagine. You know, it It just, the experience of it all, it just further highlights, like, when did we become the ugly stepchild? And how <laughs> disrespectful do I need to become to make it so this is not the case? Because ultimately, you have to live in the full breath of what you know as, a, as, a, as the person to defend these children, as the advocate for what is what we want to consider patient-centered care. We have to become so risk it all that we risk it all, that we become belligerent or out of pocket in the, in the expression of how, you know, color folk talk, we say, you know, you out of pocket, you're not, you're not fitting into the fold. And I have done that in my career. It's the reason I find myself in a lot of deep juju with the state of Florida, which is another great story. <laughs> but yeah, being out of 
And we will get to it one day. Being out of pocket is really what you need to do to center yourself in the space of fighting for your patient, for your client, for your student. Why is that what we have to do? Why can't we just have equal standing and have conversations as equal professionals in the room? When did that mm-hmm. become a problem? I just don't get it, especially for all fighting for the person we're hoping to help. I feel like people are just not doing that. It's no longer a place where we're trying to help the student, help the patient, help. What are we doing then? Are we just all here passing the time? Is that what's happening? Because I just want to understand. Yeah. It is It is a very difficult situation to feel like you are not on the same page with the other professionals that you're sharing your student, your client, your patient with. And, and that's where we find ourselves a lot of the time. So the solution um, that I chose is not what I would recommend mm-hmm. for every professional, because obviously the solution for this particular problem, especially when it comes to dealing with colleagues, there's a multitude of ways that we could go about dealing with this. Um, I chose to be myself in the room a lot of the time, and I apologize <laughs> for that. I'm fully, I'm fully who I am in the room whenever I experience these things. But I, like I said, I'm a risk it all type of person. I yell it. Do you have any, any solutions to how to navigate situations like this? I, I mean, I had an issue with a very, very difficult teacher that made my, you know, life at my school a living hell. Um, we had a lot of interactions that were negative, and I actually went and spoke to our union representative about it at the school. Um, we battled a lot, uh, and I felt like a lot of the time it was, it went nowhere. Um, I just started keeping a log. But this is, you know, this is CYA. This is not really helping the students. You just worked within it as best as you could. As best as I could. I took them out of the room as much as I could so that I didn't have to work under their rules. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I did, I, I would write a log of every negative interaction that we had. I had a Google Doc. I would just open it up, type the date write out what happened so that I had a log of every single incident if if it ever came to that that I needed to defend myself I, against her. I feel I feel that's really the biggest thing is that that's a that's really a space of, of self-preservation, self-protection. Yep. Is it a solution? It's one solution. It's to make sure that you stay employed and you don't find yourself in you know in hot water. Does it change anything about what's the circumstances for our students and for people that we're trying to really help? No. So I don't think that it's something that's going to be fixed to, to really be fixed without us kind of getting uncomfortable and being a little prickly, becoming little practices that just make it uncomfortable for people to really feel like this is acceptable. Um, It's going to be uncomfortable. And I think that's the only way to make change is to get uncomfortable. Um, and that's the solution I would recommend for everyone is to find just how far you can make the the situation uncomfortable for them to question your expertise, your ability to help these children and advocate for them and your patients and whomever, just, just be as far into your discomfort as you can, if you can, because it's needed, how we've been doing it isn't working where it's just getting worse. So that would be my recommendation for anyone. 
find your space and making the system be uncomfortable. All right. I have a little bit of a wrap up from Miss um, Cassie. Okay. Uh, well, there's two questions, but they, they kind of tie in a lot together. So I asked her, what is her piece of education for the next generation of professionals? And she said, find something that makes you feel good and make sure it happens. If it doesn't happen, you're not stuck in that job. It can be clinical or just basic. For me, it's illuminating people's strengths. I will not do anything with a student that undermines their strengths. I want my students feeling confident, capable, and heard as much as possible. I try to take the same approach with myself and my coworkers. Is this job undermining my strengths? I need to leave. Am I able to build up teachers and let them know I see their strengths and appreciate them? Let them know. You want your team feeling good. If I struggle to do that and if my team suck, sorry, some teams suck, I'm not stuck with them. One of the big benefits of being an SLP is that we're usually not stuck in a bad position. And I went on, uh, we went on to say, how are you making this profession something that fulfills your dreams? And this was a written interview. So first she said, see above and everything above, you know, really fits in there too. And then she said also, and I mean this in all sincerity, there are few things that are more personally satisfying than hitting send on a resignation letter to a job you don't like. You real, you and you and Cassie would get along real well. <laughs> if your job sucks, fucking quit. I know it's not as easy to find another job and it's easy to think that the devil you know is better than the devil you don't, but I truly believe that it's worth it to not second guess your entire degree because your job, your boss, your setting, your work-life balance sucks. Ultimately, and, risk it all. <laughs> and Cassie had a lot of really great, insightful things to say um, in this interview. And I'm really thankful to her for sharing her expertise, sharing her experience, sharing her stories and her insights with us. I agree. That was wonderful. I feel like it was definitely a nice cathartic experience of Mm -hmm. WTF once again. <laughs> um, but I, I, you know, of course feel that the more time that we spend talking about it and getting everyone aware, the more we can feel like we have the power to improve what's going on and change what's going on. Absolutely. And as always, it is so great to talk to you, Ingrid. Absolutely, Miss Ayelet. So, as we wrap things up, we thank you for your time and we hope that you join us once again in the miseducation of the SLP. Bye. Bye.